Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're quite excited today. Alex, who have we got on? Oh, we've brought Chris Dobbs back. Yay! Yay! So, Alina, this was boatworthy, but even you were excited by Chris last time because he came on on our first down the pub um, to talk to us about the Mary Rose, and he won, didn't he, the uh, debate on the yeah. greatest time. So Chris is Head of Interpretation and Maritime Archaeology at the Mary Rose, and we said then we had to get him back on um to talk about his life with the Mary Rose because he's been working on the ship for so, so long and to talk about his career as a maritime archaeologist. So, Chris, welcome back. Well, it's great to be back. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, I can't wait for this because you, the little snippets that we got on the down the pub thing were so amazing um, that, yeah, I, I was just so adamant we were going to hound you into a reappearance on the show. Um, so let's just get cracking. So... We want, first of all, tell us how you got into maritime archaeology. Well, I was um, studying archaeology at university, and I went to a series of six lectures on underwater archaeology, and I thought, this sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm going to try this. So I then took up diving and passed my, you know, diving tests and all that sort of stuff. And when I left university in July, oh, it's an awfully long time ago, July 1979 happened to be the um, exact time when the Mary Rose Trust needed archaeologists who could dive to supervise the work underwater. So, I mean, it was just going straight from university on a Friday to starting work on a Monday. And it was a, a dream job. So just doing exactly the same as you would do on an archaeological site on land, but doing it underwater. Brilliant. Um, it's kind of like um, when we had Peter Campbell on, he said it was like I was doing archaeology and I was like, hang on, this looks like even more exciting archaeology um, and just got swept away by it. Um, so what when so first of all, everybody assumes with the Mary Rose, they always jump straight to the bit where she's salvaged, don't they? But one thing that's really important in, is that you spent years excavating her before you thought about bringing her up. Um, so. They discovered her in 1971, didn't they? How did that come about? I don't think you were around then, were you? You're far too no, young. That was that was, <laughs> that was before I started at the Mary Rose Trust, but it was a story that inspired me, you know, at university. Uh, uh, but there was this man called Alexander McKee who started looking for the Mary Rose and other ships in the Solent, a patch of water off the south coast of England, um, in 1965. 
Um, it's said that it was always his childhood dream to find the Mary Rose. Um, but he started to actually look for it in 1965. But it wasn't until 1971 that he and his team saw the first timbers of the ship, as opposed to just the area around the wreck site. Um, so that must have been an extremely exciting moment for him, and it all spread from there. Um, just tell us a little bit about how you did come on board to the project. Um, well, I started um, after the, w- what happened is that after they'd found the wreck in 1971, they very, very responsibly started looking around the outside of the ship. They didn't immediately start digging inside. Um, and uh, so it wasn't until 1978 that they'd worked out with an archaeologist that they brought on board called Margaret Rule that there really was um, an intact part of a Tudor warship buried underneath the mud. But once that had been realised, they then needed to form a a charity called the Mayor Rose Trust to take the excavation ahead to do it in a really proper manner and try to achieve the same standards of underwater archaeology as you would on land. Um, So that trust was formed in 1979, and that's when we started to do the major excavation. So just imagine a complete shipwreck buried underneath the seabed, but complete with all the contents that were on board when the ship sank in 1545. Um, And that's what's so exciting about the project, that we've got a complete cross-section of a ship and a cross-section of a Tudor society with all the objects. That's why it's been called, you know, the Pompeii of British archaeology. That's absolutely, that's incredible. Absolutely incredible. I didn't know any of this. So excited. It it is, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. You said it's exciting, but on every single dive you made down to the wreck, you just did not know what you could find, you know, what aspect of Tudor life, what personal possessions. Um, And and so um, that's really what made it so inspiring. I I think there's something very perhaps romantic about something that was lost and is now found. It's like the, you know, the the sheep in the Bible that, that you, you know, it's it's been buried underneath the seabed for so long. So, um, although it, it wasn't a treasure hunt, it was an archaeological excavation. It has that aura of uh, finding lost treasure. It just for me, the first history book I ever read as a, a little girl was my mum's Mary Rose book. So it's even more romantic for me because it's why I love history. But Gornalina, you take over and because you're slightly less excitable right now. <laughs> <laughs> We're already on the subject of the excavation anyway. But can you tell us more about it? I mean, you worked on her for three or four years, didn't you? Uh, yes, so um, the excavation, I started in July 1979. I joined the team then. They'd started the major excavations in April or May of 1979. And my job was to um, go down to the wreck site and do some excavation, but it was mostly to train the volunteer divers. So over the next three or four years, we had 500 um uh, different volunteer amateur divers working on the site. So something else that we did was to very much stick to the prevalent archaeological culture at the time, which was to use volunteer labour. Uh, but this meant that, you know, when the Mayro's excavation finished, another 500 people had experience in 
doing underwater archaeology. So that was another great bonus of the, um, you know, the, the, the Mayrose project. But my job was to teach them what to do and supervise them underwater. Um, and that carried on for the whole of 79, 80 and 81. So that by 1982, we were ready to start with the salvage operation. But what we did was to completely empty the hull of all the objects before we did the salvage. So, I I mean, just one of my most amazing experiences was that we found one complete cabin um, and we didn't know what was inside it. Um, So it was literally all the partitioning was still in place and there was a sliding door at the front. I mean, beautifully made. Um, and this actually ended up, as we discovered, being the a cabin of the master carpenter. So it was just completely stuffed full of uh, carpentry tools and shipwrights tools. And al- although it was full of mud, it, it was almost like a, a Tutankhamun moment because you can just imagine, um, you know, Howard Carter looking through a, a little peephole into the tomb and and um, Lord Carnarvon or whatever, nudging him and saying, what can you see, what can you see? And he's supposed to have turned around and say, wonderful things, wonderful things. And that's what it was like going into a cabin like this, just finding wonderful things on every single dive. Um, we have talked to you before about your most fav- favourite ar- artefact that you brought up, but for the benefit of the people um, that weren't listening to the Down the Pub things, it was quite a few weeks ago on our listenership has just gone bonkers since then um tell everybody about your shovel (laughs) (laughs) um my favorite object sort of varies depending on the the way the question is asked so i'm i'm glad you reminded me which one that i said was last time otherwise people will be wondering why it's different but yes you've given the game away it was a shovel and so listeners might wonder why why would he pick a shovel as his favourite object? You know, why not a chest full of somebody's personal possessions or one of the guns or gold coins or something? But it's because this shovel was so extraordinarily ordinary. It was beautifully made, carved out of one piece of wood, um, but carved along the length of the grain. So it's what we call cleft, uh, cleft wood. Um, and so that meant that the handle and the shaft and the blade were all made from one piece of wood. Um, so it was incredibly strong, again, because the, the, the grain of the tree went straight down the wood. And I remember this one particularly because I, I found it on one of my dives, just a corner of it, and I exposed the whole thing underwater. And then I thought, well... I'm not going to leave this for someone else to bring it up. So I did all the measurements. We had a measuring system for showing where things were. And um, then after I'd completely exposed it and excavated it and picked it up, I sort of just held this. I mean, I I, I remember it distinctly. I, I was kneeling literally on the silt at the bottom of the trench. And I held this up and just looked at it and thought, wow, the last person that touched this was a Tudor sailor. It's amazing. Uh, you said, yeah. though, that your answer changes. Tell us about some of the others. <laughs> well, I suppose, you know, that's my favourite because it has so much meaning for me. It, it's the one object that, that um, I suppose, 
you know, gave me some empathy with a Tudor sailor because I thought the last person that touched this was was someone from 436 years ago. Um, but uh, if it was, if the question was slightly differently phrased, not my mo- my most favourite object, but the most important object. Again, I would actually choose something that some people might seem think to think is a bit plain, but it's it's a rosary. It was actually found by my wife, Chrissy, and brought up by her. Um, but a rosary, so a paternoster, so a series of beads um, with a series of 10 small beads and one large bead. And this is what people would say their prayers with. You'd say 10 Ave Marias and one paternoster, one um, 10 Hail Marys and one Our Father. Um, but what is so extraordinary about this, again, it was beautifully made, beautifully carved. And it's very tactile. You know, someone would, would literally have it in their hands uh, as they said their prayers. But also, it's a very Catholic way of praying. And in fact, um, in the 1530s, so seven years before the Mayrose sank, you were actually banned from saying your prayers this way because, you know, Henry VIII was, you know, forming the Church of England and the break with Rome. And yet we still find it on the mirrors. This is Henry VIII's ship. You know, it actually belongs to him and all the equipment on board belongs to him. Um, but we found eight or nine of these rosaries on board the ship. And it shows that even though um, using uh, rosaries like this had been banned, people were still going to keep praying with the method they'd used for the last 20 or 30 years, um, whatever the king was doing. And, and I talked about this Pompeii moment, but these wouldn't have been discovered. You know, these sailors wouldn't have been found out for doing things against the king's wishes if the Mary Rose hadn't sunk and all their secrets and their treasures had gone down with, uh, of the crew, had gone down with the ship for us to reveal hundreds of years later. I love it. Um, what is, there must have been stuff that you picked up on the seabed where you picked it up and no one has ever been able to figure out what the hell it is. Uh, sure, that happens. You know, archaeologists don't know um, uh, you know, we don't know everything at the time. We've had objects in our um, uh, collection that we didn't know what they were. But the great thing is that we've, you know, we show them to experts. Some some things are still in the museum that we're not quite sure. There's a couple of um, carpenter's tools. We can't be absolutely sure what they were for. We think one was a uh, like a uh, a small thing for measuring things with. Uh, a way of making a template and another might be a scraper. So it's a bit like a spoke shave, but it's more like a scraper. So, you know, we get these objects um, that we don't know exactly what they are. We've got some uh, things that look like drumsticks, but they're probably chart sticks. So you would, you would wind a chart up with them. And so some of these things you uh, only identify when people see them many years after they they were actually excavated underwater. Chris, what was the most difficult thing to excavate? Um, some of the f- fragile things. We've got things like lanterns, uh, and lanterns, the word lantern is, is a, sort of like a lamp horn. So they had horn inserts. Um, if you imagine a barrel, a very small barrel, made with staves and every other stave is missing and has a horn insert in it. Do you imagine? You then get like a shape of a cylindrical lantern. 
and those were quite difficult because they were they were very fragile. So you had to to, to excavate them uh, intact and in one piece. You'd have to see one end of them, recognize what they were, and then almost dig a a mound, expose them in the in the soil. I call it, but it's the mud. Um, expose them like on a plinth first, and then undercut them and then put them in a chest and bring them to the surface. Do you see what I mean? So so those were a big challenge. But one of my biggest challenges that I took on was to try to bring up chests, so sailors' chests in one piece. Mm. Um, and al- although the whole principle of what we were doing was that, and, and I think we showed the world um, how you could do archaeology underwater to the same standard as archaeology on land, um, I felt that these chests, there was no point excavating them and completely emptying them underwater. If you could actually raise the whole chest, um, put it in a box underwater just bigger than the chest, and then raise the whole thing to the surface for excavating on the surface, simply because you could spend more time on it. You know, you could spend half a day on it instead of just um, an hour or 72 minutes, which was a typical dive time underwater. Um, so I think they were quite they were quite difficult. Oh, it just, I could listen to this all day. Um, obviously, this stuff is massively old. Is there anything that you sadly just lost because you could not get it up in one piece? Um, I mean, yeah, to take one example, um, the first time we saw a sword underwater, it was, you know, we hadn't seen a sword before. And mm. to get something made of, you know, basically metal surviving... Um, sorry, I digress, but um, underwater or on the May Rose side, because of the silt, leather and wood survived really well. Yeah. But metal didn't survive so well because of the, you know, the uh, salt water and corrosion and so on. And that, in that way, underwater archaeology really complements land archaeology because land digs have the metal but not the wood, and we have the wood but not the metal. So there was this sword which we uncovered in one of the trenches that I was um, supervising. Um, and it was the first sword we'd found. And it was so fragile. It was literally just a stain on the seabed. And Margaret Rule, who was directing the excavation, was always keen to try out new techniques underwater. So we built this little sort of coffer dam around it with a metal, a flexible metal, um, well, a long, long sheet of metal exactly shaped around the sword. But it was about a metre long. Um, and then she used a polysulfide rubber or something to inject into this to make a mould of the sword, because what we hoped we'd be able to do is then to lift this mould with the sword. Um, but sadly, this this didn't work, but it would, didn't mean we shouldn't try it because we were trying new techniques the whole time. So that sword was was lost. You know, you couldn't, as you, as you say, you just couldn't raise it from the seabed. So one of the only records of it is a photograph I took with a scale before we tried this method. Um, but very, very fortunately... Uh, later on in the excavation, another sword was found actually underneath the ship. And this was in one piece and just perfectly, it, it survived perfectly. And it's actually the uh, earliest dated basket hilted sword. Anyway, it's, it's for the for the sword anoraks amongst us. It is the most fantastic object to, to have a basket hilted sword from a known date. Um and it was in perfect condition. So it's just, I think the way metal goes is that because of galvanic corrosion or whatever it is, 
sometimes there might be something touching it that, that disintegrates and the object you want completely survives, like anodic protection. But, um, uh, I mean, just, uh, yeah, that, that was, that's an example of an object that we just couldn't, we couldn't actually lift from the bottom of the seabed in one piece because it was just a stain in the mud. Let's move on to the salvage. This is the most complex and expensive salvage, salvage project ever at the time. And how does the idea get floated that you're going to try and bring her up? Um, I don't think it's the most expensive ever, but it was certainly, oh, but salvage, because you've had really expensive salvages, but for a historical vessel 500 years old, it mm. certainly was very novel and, and, um, and so on. But, how do you float the idea? I mean, I, I think, again, going back to the work of Alexander McKee and Margaret Rule, Alexander McKee, who, who first searched for it and found it, and Margaret Rule, who, who directed the excavation, um, one thing that they did when the Mayrose Trust was formed was I think they very responsibly had a meeting with all the great and the good and experts, and they discussed two questions completely separately. One was... Um, could the Mary Rose be excavated and raised to the surface? Um, and that was almost a, an engineering and, you know, um, archaeological and fundraising discussion. But the other was, should it be raised, excavated and raised? And I think it's really important to differentiate between those two different questions. Um, and it's only because the answer to those two meetings was it was a yes yes it's like getting four yeses in britain's got talent isn't it yeah. um, because the answer was yes to both um in fact someone should have smashed the golden buzzer i reckon definitely uh, for this cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. <laughs> um, then, because the answer was both, then we it meant that we went ahead with the planning of how to excavate it. And even up until the last minute, there was always a fallback situation. Uh, Margaret Rule was very, always very keen to make sure that we kept back enough money or enough capital so that if the uh, something went wrong with the salvage, we could rebury the ship and leave it underneath the water for or underneath the seabed for future generations. So it was, it was, quite a re responsible and um and sort of staged decision making process you had uh, royal support as well didn't you uh yes um prince charles who actually studied archaeology at the same university as me and was also a diver because he dived in the royal navy he became our um uh, president and patron and he dived on the site about nine times. I dived with him on five times. I was very um, privileged to, 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 you know, to be chosen to dive with him on, on five of his dives. And he was, he was quite, quite amazing. I mean, I think 
to actually have um, the Prince of Wales, not, not just being your patron, but actively coming to the site and diving on it. Um, I think that was a, a great show to the world that this really was an important project. Because, you know, up until then, I, I think the the underwater cultural heritage, as it's now called, was largely ignored by the public or just thought of as a source of treasure. But with his involvement and with the Mayor's Trust uh, showing that archaeology could be done underwater, um, I think that the Mayor's project and particularly the lifting, although in a way the excavation was more important, but particularly the lifting, because so many people in Britain um, listened into that and watched it on the BBC television live, uh, that really brought, uh, you know, raised awareness of the underwater heritage to, to the whole nation and to the world, in fact. Um, we'll get to the lift in a minute, but talk to us about planning it. Um, it involved a big yellow frame, didn't it? <laughs> I was very, I, I wasn't bored, so, but yeah, it's, I've, that's my memory of is it a big yellow yeah. frame with the pictures in there? Yeah, yeah. I want to know more about this yellow frame. It sounds intriguing. Yeah, this yellow frame. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, jumping ahead a bit, but I think one of the problems with the salvage is that it was sort of quite well hyped up in the press. But then when the ship came up, you know, because it's a 500 year old ship, it was obviously cocooned in this yellow lifting frame and cradle. So that when it came up through the surface, um, I was actually underwater at the time, but when it came up and people could see it live on television, they were wondering, well, you know, where are the sails? Where are the masts? Where are all the decks? Why can't we see it? Uh, and it's only when we really um, opened the new museum in its final form in 2016 um, that you could really see the Mayros and see how fantastic it is. Um, but anyway, sorry, the question was about this uh, yellow frame. Um, and... To answer that, I need to go into a bit of detail of how we raised the ship. But the uh, civil engineers who designed the system designed a really clever system. Because if you imagine, the ship itself was very, very fragile. Uh, because we've only got half a ship, it didn't have, you know, the innate strength of a box. It's, it's, it's like an egg. Margaret Rule likened it to an egg. And an egg is quite strong. But when you've got half an egg, it's like an open petal of a flower, you know, it'd be impossible to raise it from the bottom of the sea. So what they designed is a lifting frame that we lowered over the top of the ship and was standing on four legs. And then we wired the whole ship up to that lifting frame. Uh, then we jacked up the lifting frame so that the hull was just taken about three or four inches off the seabed. Then the whole ship was lifted underwater and transferred underwater into a cradle. And then the whole, the whole system of the cradle and the frame and the legs was raised in one piece. So it was like cocooned almost in this box when it came through the water surface, because that's the really difficult thing, uh, is raising it up through the surface. But by then... It was protected. It was resting on a cradle below and hung from a frame above so that it was, it wasn't just dangling as it came up. And that's why the public couldn't really see it so well amidst that enormous yellow frame that you talked about. Can you take us through that day? Um, sure. Um, we got up pretty early. I mean, we'd been working for months before then. 
Um, in fact, I need to take you to the day before first, because um, as many listeners might remember, it was meant to be coming up on Sunday, the 10th of October, 1982. That's the day that the press and the television said that it was going to come up on the Sunday. Um, and when we woke up that morning on the Sunday morning, because we were staying on board or on board the, the enormous salvage vessel called Togmore uh, that was moored out in the Solent, um, when we woke up that morning, the whole site was suddenly surrounded by about a hundred small ships um, in a sort of anchorage pattern, like a like a round a cricket pitch. I mean, just you know, really accurately in a circle because there was a an exclusion zone of about I don't know two hundred meters. So we woke up that morning and there were thousands of ships. And I think that's when we suddenly realised what we were trying to achieve. You know, we were trying to to raise a five hundred year old ship from the seabed. So there were all these people watching and the radio and the television kept saying it was going to come up that day and wasn't this exciting. Um, but we knew it wasn't going to come up that day because we still had the um, nylon strops on the frame that I talked about earlier. I, you know, I talked about how the first um, stage or an early stage was moving it underwater into the cradle. And then the next stage would be lifting it. So we knew it wasn't going to come up on that Sunday morning. And um, that was a bit sad. So it was a bit like watching paint dry if you were uh, watching the television on the Sunday. But you said talk us through the day. So the day it actually came up was the Monday. And again, we woke up that morning. There were slightly fewer ships around us because it was a Monday, not a Sunday. Um, but uh, I went into the water at about eight o'clock in the morning. Um, and the my job on the day was to fill up... Um, all the airbags underneath the hull that was sort of going to be used partly to take some of the weight, but also to cushion the um, the hull where it was lying on the cradle. So, I mean, just like cushions. So I was filling up all the, those airbags. And uh, then the lift could go ahead. And at 9.03, um, I can see from the records, is when the first few timbers came above the water's surface and all the guns went off and the champagne corks were popping and so on but I was actually underwater still and saw the Mary Rose lifting up off the seabed in its cradle and then going up through the water surface so you can imagine that was you know one of the most amazing dives I had on the ship to have been underwater when it came up was was really quite a privilege there was but a I did slip wasn't the there Oh, um, they must have saved you some. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I did, they didn't save any champagne. But yeah, there was a slip. So um, I was underwater until, and um, also a, another colleague called Kester Keithley and Jonathan Adams on the May Rose Trust diving team and two people from the Royal Engineers diving team were underwater as it came through the surface. Um, but then when the weight started to come onto the, uh, you know, as, as it came through the surface, you can imagine the weight on the hook and on the crane started to get um, larger and larger. And so that's the stage where the divers had to come up out of the water because we'd finished our task of uh, filling up these lift bags and so on. So we came out of the water. And very soon after that, um, in fact, I was being interviewed on the BBC um, 
live broadcast at the time. But there was this almighty crash because of a series of unfortunate events. Uh, what happened was that the frame, you know, I talked earlier about a frame and a cradle. Yeah. But the frame sort of in one corner slipped down one of its legs. But luckily it didn't, um, it didn't damage the hull. And then after about half an hour of umming and ahhing, we were able to go ahead with the salvage. But it was a very, very tense moment because, you know, we suddenly, it seemed as though all our efforts of the last five years, or you could say the last 15 years, could have been in vain. Uh, but later we were congratulated for making it look much more exciting than than just watching paint dry because it yeah, did, you, did take quite a long time. You said it wasn't actually the most thrilling thing to watch, was it? And it actually just added a bit of drama. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think for it to have gone on for two whole days um, uh, was a bit of overkill. But of course, the when you set up a, a broadcast like that, I mean, it was live. You can't with, with a Tudor shipwreck. You can't just predict that you'll be able to just pick it up from the bottom of the sea and and all will be well. So I think it just it just underlined how amazing a project it was. And the whole the whole story of the Mary Rose has been one of or modern story has been one of um perseverance and human endeavour, you know, from Alexander McKee finding it to the archaeological team excavating it, to the salvage and then to the fundraising and building museums. It's really a team of, you know, it's a, it's a team, it was a team effort and an amazing piece of human endeavor with so many twists and turns. And, and I, I, I love it because it's so extraordinarily English and bonkers. I mean, why would you <laughs> read it from the bottom of the sea? You know, it's, it's like Concord and the Channel Tunnel. I mean, perhaps they're not bonkers, but it's, it's this sort of, idea that's dreamt up that seems impossible perhaps at the time but then through human endeavor is you know that the dream is realized so what on earth happens then i mean you've got this priceless artifact dangling in a box in midair i mean it's world class to have a below the water view of this on the record but then what happens well yeah. so in, in fact um then you, you say you know you've got this tudor ship dangling in midair and that seemed to go on for hours because this you know we've been so worried about this um this collapse that happened earlier um the the ship was dangling in the air and then a barge was brought in for it to be lowered down and the captain who was in charge of the lifting operation captain john suddies on the togmore this enormous howard doris crane that um had been uh, loaned to the Mayrose for free uh, to do the salvage. Um, you know, he was just very gently lowering it down, and it took two or three hours. And you know, you couldn't help just think, just just drop it, just drop it onto the barge, because then then we'll feel it's safe. Um, but the, the barge could only be um, couldn't be too wide, because then it wouldn't be able to get into the dockyard. So um, they had to actually place the cradle and the ship exactly on this barge to within about an inch and of course the weather was starting to get up so it just took ages and ages but when it was finally landed on the barge um we could we could breathe a, a bit of a sigh of relief and then that night it was towed into Portsmouth Harbour again with absolute fantastic uh, uh, applauding it was just amazing 
I know that um, you are not a conservationist, um, but just briefly, uh, she was sprayed for many, many years with preservative, wasn't she? And I always remember from when I was when, when I was little and I used to watch her through that glass wall just being drenched that they told us that one of the chemicals was the same thing, uh, that you, the, a wax that you use in lipstick, um, but it had to penetrate the whole section of hull, didn't it? I think I think that's a really good explanation. I don't think I have to add anything. To that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what they were doing. They were they were trying to get the wood, weren't yeah, they, to absorb exactly. all of these preservatives. And then um, yeah. I forget how long. But then the next stage, it was years again, wasn't it? Was to turn all that yeah. off and let her dry. Um, and yeah. then you come back in and and tell us about how the process of taking what people had seen lying down in the big yellow frame and couldn't really imagine as a Tudor ship um, and to how you present it so that they look at it and they go, wow, now I get it. And I get (laughs) that you can actually see the structure still. And it's like a a one-off, isn't it? It's unique in the world to go and be able to see a cross-section of a ship like that from that period. Yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, a very good description, but I mean, just to fill in a, a bit of detail, um, the ship was brought ashore and then uh, brought into a dry dock, which was then drained. So it's in a it's in a dry dock in Portsmouth Historic Dockyard, um, and then from um, it was brought in in December 1982. So from then until 1994, so for 11 or 12 years, it was sprayed with chilled fresh water. Um, and there, that's when the scientists could work out what would be the best way of conserving it. And the archaeologists, such as myself, worked on rebuilding, replacing many of the decks that we took out when it was underwater. So we rebuilt the ship, but only to the extent of how we saw it underwater. And so that was from 83 to 94. But then in 1994, we started spraying with this wax uh, that you mentioned called polyethylene glycol. And it's a, um, yeah, it's a, it's a water-soluble wax. So that was sprayed for, um, uh, in, initially for 11 years of one type of poly, polyethylene glycol. And then it was uh, sprayed with a thicker type of polyethylene glycol until the wax had actually penetrated into the cells of the wood enough that when it dried out, the cells wouldn't collapse. And so the scientists... Um, uh, measured how much it had penetrated until 2013 when uh, the wax had done its job and that's when we were able to start to dry the ship out and that was uh, coincided with when we built the museum so that we'd be able to display a dry ship. So we first um, uh, opened the museum in 2013, but it was only in 2016 that we were able to take it out of a sort of cocooned laboratory that it was in and display it for the first time with floor-to-ceiling glass so that when you go into the museum, you can actually see the whole ship from many different angles. And um, the way we display it is that we display thousands of objects exactly opposite where they were found. So when I talked about these chests and the guns, um, you look to one side and you can see the objects and you look to the other side, you can see the ship. And I think, I mean, it is, it is one of a kind and you, it's something you have to see for yourself to understand. Uh, you can't, you can't really 
see it in pictures or on websites. Um, so, yeah, it is it is quite amazing. I just your whole history with the Mary Rose. I mean, it spans nearly forty years now. Um, obviously, you're only forty five, so it's, it's your entire <laughs> life. Um, such a unique perspective on something like you say so utterly british utterly bonkers completely innovative um where nobody had the answers but you had the solution or what you wanted and someone just had to find a way to make it happen and if that meant sitting there for 11 years and spraying it with wax and polyethylene glycol so someone who failed gcse chemistry almost um it's just brilliant i actually i could listen to you talk about this all day long you must be so (laughs) proud of your involvement yeah i think i've been very privileged to be involved and as i said earlier it's been an absolute team effort i mean the the amount the number of people who've who've contributed to make this the museum that it is today, whether it's the original divers who looked for it and found it or the excavators or the people who raised it or those who raised funds for it or those who registered all the objects or conserved them uh, and, uh, you know, the trustees, the volunteers who who um, man the museum and introduce the public to it. I mean, it is just uh, an amazing uh, project and I think everybody does it because it is so utterly indescribable um you know to 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 be able to see things another of my favorite objects is actually a, a shoe but it's it's being completely worn through so there's a hole in it and and that again is is an example of an object that you can empathize with the Tudor sailor who who wore it you know we've got the plum stones we've got the peppercorns we've got the equivalent of the eye watch of the people on board and and so there's yeah it's this complete cross-section and unlike any other museum or country home or estate that you might vi- visit this has objects but belong to the everyday man um and not just the posh people you know you see paintings and gold and silver tea sets and so on when you visit other museums um and statues but at the may rose you you see these ordinary objects like knit combs and wooden bowls and wooden beer tankards it's Um, one moment frozen in time isn't it yeah it is it is I love it. Um, I've already decided as soon as I can uh, get out of here and we're allowed out, I'm going down to Portsmouth Dockyard because we did our hornblower show last night. So I want to see Victory again. Um, and I absolutely, I have not yet seen the museum. I've seen her in all her different stages. So as a little girl, um, but I have not seen her in the Finnish museum. So it's my first thing I'm going to do when we're allowed oh, um, out again. It's a, it's a pity, you know, as we talk, we're, uh, you know, the coronavirus is just striking. My post is going to be furloughed on Monday uh, and the museum has just closed. But when it reopens, I hope sometime this summer, um, it will be a cause for celebration. And, and I hope a, a lovely way that people can, you know, do something cultural when they're let off this um, isolation because, because it, it is very well worth seeing. I'm going to have to fly into England to be able to go and see... <laughs> To, to see the Mary Rose, but um, road trip, we'll go. Yeah, let's do it because I'm I'm swayed, um, and I never thought I'd ever say <clears throat> hear myself saying that that I have been swayed towards a ship. But she even go. called it a ship, Chris. You have succeeded. <laughs> you Did I just say it. ship? You said ship instead of boat. Uh oh. So proud of you. Uh oh. 
<laughs> Chris, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to James Rogers about the history of weaponry. Um, and what we did was ask him to pick the most important innovations in history so far as weapons are concerned and talk us through them. It's really interesting. Um, I definitely learned a lot. Uh, don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack now for as little as a dollar a month. It will help us to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis. Uh, you just need to go to www.history historyhack.podbean.com. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.